All right, well, um, turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at just a few verses in chapter 1, but we're going to jump over to chapter 6, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So if you want to flip there, you can kind of stay in chapter 6. I'm going to read for us and then, uh, and then pray. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem and the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And then chapter 6, 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of, his, of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, 
and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Most holy and glorious God, we come into your presence just as Isaiah had a vision of the temple of you. We come to hear your word and to have a new vision for who you are. Make our ears attentive. Make our eyes able to see. Do not allow our hearts to be um, resistant in all our idolatry and sin. Melt our hearts. Make us new. Help us see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and receive the good news afresh. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're starting a new series for the rest of the summer, uh, maybe into the fall a little bit, on the book of Isaiah. And um, we're going to be focusing on who God is in this series. So much like a lot of churches will go through the Psalms in the summer and uh, kind of get a various portraits of God through the Psalms, we're going to kind of jump around through the book of Isaiah and really hone in on some passages that just beautifully tell us about the nature of God and the character of God. And so we're not going to be going straight through. We're going to be looking at different selections. It's a huge book, and it's a goldmine for um, our doctrine of God. Our, you know, What does the Bible teach about who God is? And so I'm, I'm titling this series, The Holy One of Israel, which we just read was one of the titles used for God in chapter 1. In fact, it's the most common title that Isaiah uses for God in the book, The Holy One of Israel. Now, Isaiah is a tough book, and so I want to give you a little background, but the best place you can go for background is to go read 2 Kings 15 through 20. 2 Kings 15 through 20, and also 2 Chronicles 26 through 32. If you go read those, you're going to get a sense of what was going on in Judah and Jerusalem and Israel as a whole, and the northern kingdom as well. Um, that's going to give you the background, but let me tell you a little bit about what's happening here. Isaiah is a prophet to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And he lived and ministered from around 740 B.C. Um, till about 701 B.C. Just to give you a sense of when that is, if you go way back to King David, the first great king of Israel, we're looking at about 1010 B.C. And he reigned for 40 years till 970. And then his son Solomon reigned from 970 to 930 B.C. And after that, the kingdom of Israel split into the north, which is often called Israel or Ephraim or uh, Samaria, and then the southern kingdom, which is the, the southern kingdom is called Judah, and that's where um, Isaiah mainly prophesied. There had been 200 years, essentially, of kind of tension between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Of course, God had called them to be one people, and yet they had divided, and there was conflict and tension, sometimes even violence. Isaiah comes onto the scene and he's probably the nephew of, uh, of King Uzziah. His, King Uzziah's brother was named Amos, and a lot of people think that was Isaiah's father. Maybe a different Amos, we're not entirely sure, but we know that Isaiah had access to the kingly court. 
He prophesied to Israel's, uh, to Judah's kings. And he prophesied mainly about Judah, but also about the northern kingdom as well. Now, in the time of Isaiah, there had been 75 years of relative peace and prosperity because the great empire Assyria of the northern Iraq region had sort of um, calmed down a little bit. It had, it's a major empire. It had conquered nations all around it. But for whatever reason, it went through a period of quiet. They weren't as powerful as they had been. And so um, the, the region of Israel and the kingdoms around it, even down into Egypt, had enjoyed relative peace and safety during that season. North of uh, Israel was uh, a kingdom named Aram or Syria, and um, as Assyria in Isaiah's day began to grow in power again, everyone began to become fearful because they knew what this meant. A strong king had come on the throne, and that meant war was coming. And so Aram and Syria up in the north, and then the northern kingdom began to make an alliance to try to protect themselves against invading Assyria. And with that alliance... Judah was under pressure to join them, and they weren't sure what to do. The kings were wrestling with, should we join this uh, Syrian and uh, northern kingdom alliance, or should we try to become allies with Assyria? And Isaiah prophesied to Judah and said, don't trust any of the nations. Don't make any alliances. Trust that Yahweh will protect you. But Israel had been unfaithful. Even in this, these years of 75 uh, years of prosperity, Israel uh, was not being faithful to the covenant God had given them. And so in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, which we didn't read, we just kind of, you heard that a little bit of chapter one, Israel had become like a child that had forgotten who gave them life and who nursed them. Uh, unlike donkeys and oxes who know their master and know where their home is, Israel had forgotten Yahweh. And so in their prosperity and ease, they stopped trusting God and Assyria started to grow in power, and suddenly the fear in Israel and in Judah started to grow. And then we read in chapter 6, verse 1, that the great king of many, many years, King Uzziah, died. And this is when Isaiah is called to be a prophet. And this is when Isaiah has an encounter with the living God, what he calls the Holy One of Israel. Now, um, we live in somewhat unstable times as well. Maybe not quite like what they were living in, where they were afraid of Assyrians coming in and invading them, who were a terrible people. They used to do horrible things to, they, to the people they defeated. But we live in unstable times as well. It's an anxious age. A lot of us feel the economic fluidity and a constant fluctuation. There's the political polarization and instability. Life is fast-paced, and there's always things happening. We feel overloaded and overstimulated, and we're moving around. We're mobile, and we're fragmented. And we're constantly trying to gain control of our lives. And we constantly turn to all sorts of hacks and techniques to try to gain control and get a sense of peace and security. And so like Isaiah, we need to have an encounter with the Holy God. That's what I'm hoping will happen today and as we go through this book. So we're going to talk about encountering the Holy One of Israel. We're going to talk about the holiness of God the two results that come from an encounter with the Holy God, and then our response. So first, let's talk about the holiness of God. And I want to focus on chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, especially, where it tells us that in this year, when this great king died and everyone was afraid, what will happen? We've had this strong king, a prosperous king. He died. Isaiah says, I saw 
the Lord. And right off the bat, that might make you go, wait a minute, that, how is this possible, right? Because we know from other parts of the Bible, we, nobody's ever seen God, right? John 1.18, he says explicitly, no one's ever seen God, right? So why, why is that? Well, God is spirit. God is not a material thing. God is not bound by space and time. So no one can see God. How is that possible? Well, anytime there's a revelation in the Bible of God, it's always an accommodation. It's always God um, showing us something about what he is like using things that are in space and time. It's an accommodation to the fact that we are material beings, right? Um, One person used this illustration before that I thought was helpful. If you take a flat two-dimensional plane and you take a three-dimensional object and you move it through that plane, that part that intersects with that is going to constantly change. It's going to be odd as you push that object through it. And by looking only at that two-dimensional plane, you don't get a full sense of what that three-dimensional object is like, but you get some sense. And that's kind of an analogy for what it looks like for God to reveal himself to us. He is spirit. He's not, he doesn't have a body. He doesn't exist in space and time. And so whenever there's a a vision of God or a revelation of God, it's this accommodation to us creatures. He's communicating to us something about himself through things that we can understand. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God said to him, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So even there, Moses is told that um, even in this accommodated revelation of God, uh, we cannot bear the full weight of God revealing himself to us. Now, the face you know, sort of represents the, the whole of a person, the character of a person, right? If, if I meet you with a bag over my head, you, you may not quite feel like you can trust me or you really know me. I'm not sure who you are. Like, yes, you're talking to me. But until I see your face, I'm not really sure who I'm dealing with. And, and, uh, and so God says to, to Moses, you can't see my face. That's too much for you to bear. And so he walks by Moses, so to speak. And Moses sees the sort of trail of his glory from the cleft of a rock. So Isaiah says he has a vision of God. And um, obviously by that, he means he's being given some glimpse of the glory of God. Now, let me read verses one and two. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they fly around. So what is Isaiah describing here? He is given a vision either while he is in the temple worshiping or he's given a vision of him in the temple seeing God on the throne. Why would he see God on the throne in the temple? Because the temple is the metaphorical throne of God. The holiest place is where God dwells and the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels who lean over um, is seen as like a throne where God resides. And so here, Isaiah, uh, as he's in the temple probably, is getting some vision of the glory of God and yet God is exalted. He's high above him, high and lifted up in his awesomeness. But Isaiah doesn't actually see God directly. He sees the train of his robe. So it's a picture of God as king wearing a huge royal robe that's decked out in splendor and glory. And it's so magnificent and large, it's filling the temple. And that's what Isaiah is seeing. He can't bear to see the full glory of God. And around God, probably covering him in some sense, are all these angels flying around with six wings and they're covering their faces and they're covering their feet. Or maybe that's a euphemism for their 
Uh, maybe that's a euphemism for uh, their private parts, but whatever it is, they're covering themselves because they cannot withstand the full glory of God. They're flying around and everything is shaking. It's this overwhelming uh, sensory experience. Every, the, the walls are shaking, the thresholds are shaking, and there is smoke filling up the temple, further clouding you know, the glory of God from, uh, from Isaiah being able to, to see. And he's smelling the incense that was constantly burning in the temple. And so Isaiah is given this awesome and beautiful revelation of the glory of God. God's glory is just filling the temple um, and it's it's literally awesome. That's where that word comes from, right? To be filled with awe, right? I, um, I remember when I was a kid, I used to go see some fireworks displays over the bay in San Diego. And uh, I just remember a couple of these years when they do the grand finale, it was like it was daytime. There were so many fireworks lighting up the sky over the water. It was awesome. It was beautiful and it was loud. You know, it was a little too loud for me at that age. But it, it was an overwhelming and beautiful experience. And um, recently, Evelyn went to um, Taylor Swift in Nashville and saw a concert there. And she showed me a few clips of that and recalled just the overwhelming you know, glory <laughs> of Taylor Swift, right? And of the, of the sounds and of the lights and of the, the people and the crowd. And it was just this overwhelming experience. And, and all of that pales in comparison to the vision that Isaiah had of God's beauty. It's not even a full vision of God's face. It's not even a full revelation of, of the glory of God, and yet he is overwhelmed, right? And as this is all going on, right, the, the angels are singing antiphonally. You know, it's like some are singing and then others are responding, right? It's this kind of call back and forth. And, um, and they're just yelling, uh, you know, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And of course, that we've, we sung uh, some of that earlier, and it's repeated in Revelation. And this is an amazing way of describing the God of the Bible, right? Um, because they're not just saying God is holy. They're not even saying it twice, which is the Hebraic way of giving emphasis to something, right? Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say unto you. That's to give emphasis. This is three times it is stated, and it's a way of saying God is holiest of all. There is absolutely none like him in his essence or character. He is high and lifted up. Now, let me just pause here because what, what do I mean by holy? What does the Bible mean by holy, right? You might hear that word and be confused by that or perhaps terrified by that. Um, many of you uh, maybe hear that and you think, well, God is sort of just remote and distant and uninvolved and some of you might hear that and go, yeah, God is really angry. And, um, and some of you might just say, it's just kind of a nonsense churchy word. I don't really even know what it means other than, yes, God is holy. And so I want to tell us two things that um, we need to understand about the holiness of God. Okay, And um, they're, they're kind of different, but they, go, but they go together and they're important to hold together. Um, the first is when we say that God is holy and when the Bible says God is holy, it means that God is fundamentally different than everything else. Fundamentally different, qualitatively different, wholly other than everything else. All right? That, there is nothing like God, is, is another way of putting it. There's a, a vast difference between the one who has created all things and is uncreated and everything else which is created. 
The difference between those things is not a matter of degree. It's not like one is just sort of, you go up a ladder and one is a lot better than all the others. It's, it's a fundamentally different spectrum altogether. And because of that, everything we say of God is, um, is sort of an analogy or an approximation. Um, because God's attributes, what we say about God, what's true about God, um, is not true of him in the same way as when we talk about ourselves or, or anything else created. Our, our language, in some sense, falls short of accurately describing who God is. Because God's attributes are not distinct things. They are just different ways we're trying to say something about God because all of God's attributes are identical to who he is. That's a hard thing to get your head around. God is unde- uncreated, He is independent, he is eternal, he is unchanging, he is infinite, he is not divisible into parts. You can't break him up and say, well, he's he's good, that he's got that part, and then he's loving, he's got that part, and why? These are not different parts. They're just all ways of describing the same thing, which is the one true and living God who is unlike everything else, right? You and I and everything else that is made can be divided into parts, Right? That would be an unpleasant experience, but we could be divided into parts. We could be described in our character, in our nature, as having different characteristics, and they're all different things. But with God, all of those things are united and the same because that's who God is. Another way of putting this would be to say that God is spirit. He is the fundamental ground of all being. He's not material, he's not spatial, he's not temporal. As Paul says in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. Or in the Westminster Confession in chapter 2, section 2, it says, He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. So what I'm trying to get at here is that um, all of us have our being and existence in something fundamental, which is the preserving Word of God, who exists eternally, forever, who is not divided, who has no body, who's lived forever and will live forever, is not even bound by time. He is a totally different type of being than you and I. He is absolute. Now that's kind of hard to get your head around, but that's the first thing that we mean when we talk about the holiness of God. But there's more. And this second thing is also important that we get this. God is a morally perfect being and is the fountain of all virtue, of all goodness. God is not impersonal. He's not some sort of static, absolute thing that just has always existed. God is a consciousness that is good, that is pure and whole. Listen to the way God reveals himself in Exodus 34. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, that's patient, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgives the iniquity and transgressions, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, but who will by no means clear the guilty? He is just. And these are just a few ways that we try to describe who God is because in in God, all of those are the same. God is absolute in his being, but he is personal in his character. He is a relational being that is fundamentally pure, good through and through. So God is holy. That's what we mean by that. 
And I want you to understand that's a fundamentally different view of God than everybody else, um, all the other religions in the world. Secularism also believes there is an absolute reality, but it would say it's just material things. Something material is fundamental. If you keep dividing and you go down, 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 somewhere at bottom you get this sort of base material being, whatever that is. But it is fundamentally impersonal. You can't have a relationship with that. It's not good or bad. It's not loving and merciful or faithful or any of those things. It is impersonal. Same with Eastern religions. There's something in uh, absolute. There has to be something absolute. Maybe some impersonal force out there that pervades all things. Pagan and cult religions have kind of the opposite view. They, they don't really see gods as being absolute at all. They're personal, yes, but they don't have all power. They're dependent beings just like you and I. Perhaps only Islam and Judaism have some sense of the absolute reality of God and his personal nature, but the personal God that they envision is very different than that of Christianity. Isaiah was given this revelation of the Holy One of Israel as the transcendent king in all his glory and all his goodness, this absolute being, and yet he says that that God is bound to Israel by promise. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's this personal God who is unlike everything else, who is almighty, all-powerful, and yet has bound himself in love to Israel, and he is reigning over Israel. That's the purpose of this vision. uh, Uzziah has died, but the real king is still on the throne, and he is a king of steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness and grace and patience and justice, and he is still reigning. Now, what happens when someone encounters this God? When they get a sense of the holiness of this God? And I want to say it results in at least two things. That's the second thing I want us to look at today. Two things. The first is that we begin to see ourselves more clearly. We begin to see ourselves more clearly. God is like a pure light that exposes us, right? Have you ever been to a movie theater and you, you just were eating a bunch of popcorn and it's got butter on it and you kind of got it on your face and on your clothes and maybe you had some candy and it's, you got a gummy bear stuck to you and all this and it's pitched, you know, so dark in there and you can't see and then you come outside and it's afternoon and it's summer and the light is blaring on you and you're like, oh my gosh, and you get in the car and you look in the mirror and you like, you've got popcorn all over you. That's never happened to you? Okay, well, you know, that's kind of, like God is this experience this exposing light and we're walking around in the dark all the time and we don't really have a clear sense of what we look like and who we are and then when we come into the presence of this pure light suddenly we are exposed and and that's the reaction that Isaiah has in verse 5 he says when when he sees this vision he says woe is me for i am lost or you could say i am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, woe is me. That's an expression of doom, of despair. He's saying, he's saying, I am ruined, right? Literally, I am lost or I am ruined means I am undone. I am unraveled. Uh, I am disintegrating is, is another way of putting that, right? The word integrity comes from the idea of being integrated and and whole, To lack integrity means you're unraveling, you're disintegrating, and that's 
what Isaiah is saying, saying here, he sees himself as disintegrating, as unraveling. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. That so seems like a weird thing to say, but he recognizes that his words are a reflection of his inner life, his heart. That's exactly what Jesus says about us. What we say says what's true of us inside. And he says, my lips, where I speak, this is unclean, which means I am unclean, right? He had been comparing himself, like all of us do, to Israel. In the first five chapters, you look at what he's saying about Israel as he's prophesying, and he's, look at these guys, they're idolaters, they're wicked, and and now he sees himself as unclean. And immediately, his pretense, his pride, his self-assurance, his self-satisfaction is all shattered because the glory of God has revealed his own ugliness. And then he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's not alone. He's not the only one. Israel, too, is wicked and dirty, right? We compare ourselves all the time to the people around us. That's, that's the only way that we can have any shred of pride is we find people that we're better them than them in some way, and then we feel good about ourselves. <laughs> That's how pride works in us. So whenever we're boasting, it's because we're comparing ourselves to other people. As soon as you get a vision of God and his holiness, that gets erased. No boasting anymore. No pride. So he has this awesome vision of the pure goodness of God. Have you ever encountered a person that you just felt was really good. You saw them live their life. Maybe they're incredibly compassionate or they persevered in some way or they had this amazing generosity or patience, whatever it is. It's like you look at them and suddenly you're like, man, I am nothing like that. I pale in comparison to, the, to that person's goodness, right? Well, that, usually that's only on like a, a few characteristics. With God, everything about him uh, is is it pales, we pale in comparison to him, right? The, the beautiful fireworks I mentioned earlier, the, the most beautiful vision of a landscape or the Grand Canyon leaves us in awe, right? But it's nothing compared to encountering God and then seeing ourselves and all his holiness and goodness. It evokes in us a woe, right? I look at the Grand Canyon, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That's beautiful. I'm small, but it's beautiful. You see the vision of God and you go, I'm horrible. I'm dirty. I'm a person of unclean lips. And Isaiah saw God's grandeur and power and supremacy, but he also encountered the, the goodness and love of God, which we're going to talk about now, because that's the other thing that happens when we encounter the holiness of God, is we don't just see ourselves more clearly and all our sin, we also see God's grace more clearly. So verse 6 tells of this angel that comes and touches his lip with a burning coal. And um, this sounds, again, it's kind of a weird image, but what's happening here is Isaiah is experiencing the grace of God's forgiveness. So this burning coal is likely uh, being brought to him from this, this altar in the temple where the sacrifices were made to atone for Israel's sin. And one of those coals is picked up by the angel in this vision, and it's used to touch his mouth, the very place where that uncleanness comes out. And it, and it probably is searing his lips, uh, which is a symbol of purifying him. That's what God's holiness does. It purifies us or it destroys us. 
In this case, it's purifying Isaiah. And it says, you, you know, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Your, uh, all the stuff that sin does to you, the way it corrupts you and pollutes you, he's removing that. And the, the guilt that it brings in your life, all the punishment, the penalty that you owe, the debts that you incur, that's been paid for on your behalf. Isaiah sees the glory of the holy God and he despairs because of his sin, but then immediately he experiences the forgiveness of God. He experiences it in a new way, in a deeper way than he had experienced before. Now, a lot of us struggle with God because we see, just by the nature of what it means to be God, the power of God, right? He's sovereign, he controls everything, he's made everything, and it's like, okay, I get that. But it's hard for us to think of someone that powerful because we doubt anybody can be good and have all that power. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we might think God seems controlling and maybe a little petty and self-absorbed, maybe like an evil tyrant. And that can be a challenge for us. And there's this paradox here because God is high and lifted up, we're told. And yet he is not remote and unconcerned with us. In fact, he is eager to renew us and to forgive us. He is deeply concerned with us, and he desires to be near to us. So later on in this book, in chapter 57, verse 15, God speaks, he says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's the paradox and the mystery of the vision of God in Christianity. This God who is high and lifted up with all power, unlike anything else in the world, is a God who loves and who is bound to us through his promises. Now, how does God dwell with the lowly? How does this God who is absolute in his being how does that happen? Well, God is not a solitary unity, but a diverse unity. God is a trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing forever in this community of love. And the Father sends the Son into the world. The high and lifted up one comes into space and time and joins his nature to a human body and walked among us as a person. And that's why John tells us in his first epistle, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's to be the atonement for our sins. God is holy love. And he is holy love through and through. And so I want to urge you today, not to resist the love of God. Not to run from it. Not to harden your heart. Not to ignore it. Not to say what I'm dealing with is more complicated than that. I urge you to receive the love of God and to trust this God who is high and lifted up. To make yourself low and humble in spirit because God resides. Even though he's high and lifted up, he resides with those who do not exalt themselves and think, I've got this covered, I can handle my life, but who humble themselves and see that they are people of unclean lips. And that is a scary thing to do. It is a scary thing to surrender to love. 
because it makes us vulnerable to hurt. But friends, that is the only place where we can experience life. The true and living God who is holy came near to us and atoned for our sin, and he offers it to those who are contrite, who are lowly. Now this tells us something, this whole passage tells us something about um, what it means to be a mature Christian. So if you've been a Christian for a while, um, I want you to think about this with me because this gives you an indication of whether or not you're a mature Christian. What we see here with Isaiah is that Christians who are mature are marked by repentance in the knowledge of the grace of God. They're marked by repentance in the knowledge of the grace of God. How does that work? Well, Christian maturity is not marked by knowing a lot of things about God or by sort of having this strong-willed compliance or ritual precision in worship. That's not Christian maturity. What we see here is that as we grow in our understanding of the holiness of God, that leads to a growing awareness of our own sin. And as we have a growing awareness of our own sin, we learn about the depth and greatness of the grace of God. And as we learn about the depth and beauty and wonderfulness of the grace of God, that drives us to joy and humility and love. You aren't mature, you aren't healthy, you aren't wise if you resist repentance. If you refuse to see your uncleanness, if you grow in pride, if you're growing more and more blind to your own sin, those are not marks of maturity no matter what else you think you are doing. Isaiah shows us that if we encounter God and as we walk with this holy God, it humbles us. And it also does this thing that we see in verse 8. This is the final point. What's the response that Isaiah has? He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. The Lord is speaking to the divine council. Remember, he's on a throne. He's got all his ministers and royal agents with him. And he says, who's going to go on this mission for me? And Isaiah volunteers. He doesn't presume that he's the man for the job, but he's saying, I'm willing to go. Here's, here I am. I'm willing. Send me if that's your will. And the Lord sends him. And he sends him on a very difficult ministry, which I'm not going to talk about right now, uh, other than to say, he told Isaiah, you're going to have a ministry where you're preaching and it's going to have the result of hardening your listeners' hearts because Israel is so deep in idolatry, they've had so long to repent, that this is only going to sear in them their refusal to trust in me. And that's not an easy ministry to have. But Isaiah says, I'm willing to do whatever you have called me to do. And so today, if this holy God is addressing you, and he is right now, this holy God is encountering each one of us He's inviting you to see your own self-absorption, your own selfishness, your own self-importance, but to see his love and grace for you in Christ and then to open up your arms and to surrender to whatever he is calling you to do. And, and you know better than I do what that is. Some of you, that's the hard work of uh, helping or fostering a child. And some of you, that's um, persevering in a difficult marriage. And some of you, that's setting boundaries that need to be set with people. And some of you, that's uh, just getting up and going to a job that doesn't seem to be very life-giving right now. And some of you, that's um, mothering in the midst of all the chaos that that can be and, and a thousand other things. But we, we surrender and say, God, send me to do your will in the places that you have called me. These are fearful times. Uh, they're fearful times in Isaiah's day. 
But Isaiah saw that God was reigning and that he had them and that he was forgiven. And that brought some peace and some agency in his life. And um, that's what God invites you into as well. I've gone uh, way over my time. So let's go to the table uh, where this holy God who is um, high and lifted up comes near to us in this meal and he gives us something to taste and see to uh, remember his promises of forgiveness for us in his son, Jesus Christ.